hello, this is Guillermo del Toro, and you're listening to Out Now Podcast. Hello. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... You can't hear me because I'm under the stairs. It's Abe. Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I normally discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then we like to have these special bonus episodes, and this one is one of our bonus episodes. We are in October, and this is another one of our October horror-themed specials. Uh, we've so far talked about haunted house films, and last week we talked about horror scenes and non-horror movies, which was proved to be a really fun discussion. Uh, this week, we have another kind of special episode here, um, and it is in conjunction with another thing that we also do on occasion. It is going to be a episode focused on a single film, Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs, his 1991 horror comedy. We'll get into it, <laughs> um, but yeah. The um, the plan here is that we're going to talk all about, exclusively about Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs this evening, and joining us to do such that, we have, from Cal State Fullerton, in every neighborhood, there's one professor that adults whisper about and children's cross the street to avoid. It's Mike Dillon. What's up, fools? <laughs> How are you doing, sir? I'm glad you didn't call me a roach. That's Nah, we would never do that. Start. I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk about this movie. I'll tell yeah. you that. Good. Well, Glad I, to hear. I, I I'll want, tell you that. I want to hear about why and more, and we'll get to all of that. Actually, real quick, explain why we're, we're doing People Under the Stairs, Mike. Uh, right. So there is a a large and very fun, very extravagant uh, horror and monster convention that uh, occurs biannually in SoCal. <clears throat> it's called Monster Palooza. And they're generous enough to partner with me each year as I do event programming for my university. And they set aside a few tickets to give out to students, and I devise a contest on social media. And the criteria is really simple. It's just recommend a horror film that you like showing to your friends. And in order to remain neutral, I ask you two to select the winner with the only uh, criteria there being uh, what film would you guys like to devote an episode of the podcast to. And so a lot of our entries tend to be boring, like insidious in films like that. But there were a few good ones, and you went with this one. So... Uh, shout out to one of our students. I believe her name is uh, Leah Sibrian. She submitted the winning entry, which is People Under the Stairs. Congratulations, Leah. It makes it pretty simple for us because you just give us a list of movies and we're like, yeah, all right. Like, <laughs> we'll narrow that down. Yeah, uh, yeah. We random number generate and then we look at it and then we, uh, you know, funnel it down into one one winner. Yeah, it's weird that we we spin ourselves in circles multiple times and then like, <laughs> try to figure it out. I don't know how that's supposed to help, but it does. First one we did was The Birds, I believe, and then we did The Fly, I think. And then this is. Yeah, number, that's right. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we like a we like a good mixture of different types of horror movies. For sure, yeah. No, it, uh, but but this is an interesting one to talk about. I think it's actually pretty timely, and we'll get to all of that. Uh, but first, let's uh, some quick uh, quick show note stuff here. Uh, first up, uh, we've been doing these horror episodes, as you guys know. Um, are we have another one coming next week, and then the following week to end October, we have our commentary track. That's going to be for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 1974 original from Toby Hooper. Uh, so anyone that you know is preparing um, in some way to get ready for that show you know that's the movie that we're gonna be doing so if you you know haven't seen it before or you plan to see it or you want to watch it along with us by listening to that commentary maybe be sure to pick yourself up a copy of texas chance on massacre yeah um, watch it with your family 
For sure. Uh, so last week I mentioned this already, but we talked about horror scenes and non-horror movies. And mm-hmm. I thought of two more that I really meant to mention, and they like passed me over when I was actually doing the episode. Uh, before I get to those, Mike, offhand, are there any horror scenes that come out of movies that are not horror movies that you can think of that uh, kind of stick out to you? Oh, my God. Um, it's, a fun, it's a fun I question. No yeah. Yeah, that's a fun one. I feel on the spot. I just said Mommy Dearest. Mm-hmm. But then again, mm. you know, I, 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 you're not referring to like camp. So I don't know. No, what was, I mean, look, the I, example that, that brought this up was something like in Gone Girl, where it's kind of like a thriller. And then all of a sudden she slashes somebody's throat and it gets really bloody. Is that the criteria, though? Just like no. shocking? Shocking. No, not shock value. Not necessarily. Just, like, hey, just something this isn't that... really a horror movie per se, but there's a really horrific sequence here. But mm-hmm. ex- examples that Aaron had last week were, um, for example, what'd you have, Aaron? I had 2001 um, involving the, well, use of the monolith and the the death of one, at least one of the astronauts. I had something like City of Lost Children, where it's like it's actually not a horror movie, but there's like some elements here where it's kind of disturbing. Like I um, saw it as a child. The um the nuclear blast in Terminator Two. Uh, oh, Wonka. that scared me as a kid. Mm. Willy Forever. Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The whole um, uh, ride the the boat the boat ride sequence. <laughs> I guess the scoop. <laughs> yeah. I I can think of a couple. So when Christopher Lloyd is revealed to be a toon. That's a in, good one. Yeah. Uh, Who framed Roger yeah. Rabbit? That scene used to scare me as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I thought of this, but the the RoboCop remake. Which is not good at all. No, it's not. <laughs> but it has it has one scene of of genuine what well, I, I would perceive as body horror, which is that when he says, "No, no, no, get get all these machines off of me. I want to see what I really look like underneath this." And it turns out it's not a suit. It's he's all machine, and what's left is just this like tank with his lungs sort of breathing in and out. Right. And it's really disturbing, neat little scene that is. It doesn't do a little genre switcheroo all of a sudden, but it is horrific in, in its own way. So I, I remember liking that scene in an otherwise really forgettable film. Also horrific is Samuel Jackson's hairpiece in that movie. Um, hey. The uh, the two scenes, the two additional scenes that I thought of, not even scenes necessarily. It's uh, but just movies that I I I found to be genuinely scary despite them not uh-huh. being horror films. One is uh, Failsafe, the Sidney Lumet film. Um, which kind of ties into Terminator 2 because it's all about the possibility of nuclear warfare taking place. Um, and the other is The Graduate, um, where Ooh. the ending has a uncertainty factor to it that as a person who watched that movie when I was in college, certainly rang true at the time. Um, and so I just, like it's, in addition to being just an incredible film for a number of reasons, it, it just proved to actually get under my skin a bit because of... yeah the nature of what the character's going through. You you have Justin Hoffman's character and he gets out of college and he has no idea what he's going to do. And there's just, there's el- and among the things that happen in the movie, there's just elements that like ring true. It's like, ugh. Like I'm, I'm in senior year of college watching this movie. It's like, what am I going to do? Oh, so you should find, have invested in plastics. Uh, yeah, you find adulthood terrifying. I guess. I get the time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the way to sum it up. Plastics, thanks, Abe. Yeah, um, all right. Well, yeah. I, it's just Abe. You Abe, you are the one responsible for coming up with that topic for this episode. I just I, I find it to be continually interesting, so I just want to keep yeah. bringing it up when I can because it's no, it's, that, it's a good yeah, topic. that's a really cool topic. Yeah, I wish I and, and again that those examples that you brought up, Mike, were great. I mean, you know, who wasn't scared of Christopher Lloyd becoming a tune? Probably the evil people in the world, but you know, yeah, the weasels. They're like, oh my god, this exactly. is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Let's uh, so let's get into it. Let's let's talk about Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs. In every neighborhood, there is one house that adults whisper about, and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, takes you inside. Something's in there. We gotta get out of here, Leroy. All sorts of rumors about what goes on in that house. The police never took it serious. She's been feeding that thing between the walls again. Very, very tense about this. What goes on in this house is a sin. But what goes on under the stairs is a nightmare. Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. Okay, so that should have been some of People Under the Stairs' trailer. Uh, This film, as I mentioned, is directed in 1991 from Wes Craven, written by Wes Craven as well. It stars Brandon Quinton Adams, who you may know from The Mighty Ducks, and what's the other thing? Or the Sandlot. Or the Sandlot. Yeah, there we go. It also stars, uh, in no particular order, uh, Ving Rhames, Everett McGrill, McGill, uh, Wendy Roby, A.G. Langer, Sean Whalen, Bill Cobbs, and Jeremy Roberts. The film, it involves a couple of adults and a, a juvenile. They break into a house that's occupied by two people uh, they are quirky characters for sure and soon enough we learn that they have a lot of things going on in this house uh, including perhaps people that live under the stairs <laughs> um, and it becomes a no struggle to way. survive for various reasons um, with all that said this movie was a moderate hit at the time like it, it fairly low budget six million dollars but it ended up grossing a little over 30 um Mid, mixed reviews, mixed positive reviews. Um, we'll get into a lot of the stuff it's trying to talk about. Uh, but the film... Oh, who's the producer? Uh, this is part of what this like Wes Craven period where he's working at Universal and he does, he does three movies for them. Um, one is um, uh, the, the Serpent and the Rainbow, another Shocker, and this was the the, the third film in there. It's produced by Shep, Shep Gordon. He's the one. He, wow. he had a lot of... Uh, uh, enough pull to get some like interesting, unique films from the in the horror genre like to come out uh, through the under the Universal banner at the time. Um, and yeah, this is like this this weird kind of trilogy of horror films that Wes Craven happened to do for Universal. With all of this said, Mike, you are excited to uh, talk about this movie with us. What? Why is that? Uh, I think this movie is great. I think I, I I rediscovered it a little bit later on after a few rewatches I'm, I'm sure i'm not sure when i first saw it but it would have been around the time it came out as a video rental so maybe early 90s possibly mid 90s and, and i'm guessing i found it initially because i'm a huge twin peaks fan and so everett mcgill and wendy roby <clears throat> that pairing was my gateway mm-hmm. but it, it was in much later probably in college that i developed a much deeper appreci- appreciation for it now i think it's maybe my favorite west craven film it's class themes it's social commentary it's racial commentary all hold up very nicely it's got a lot of things that are still very topical like the whole metaphor of upstairs downstairs has been 
rather fashionable recently, right? In films like Parasite and uh, maybe more so in Jordan Peele's Us. And so <clears throat> I've used this film in classes. It just lends itself to really great conversation and analysis if, uh, if that's your bent. But also it's just, it's campy, it's silly, it's fun. It's, it's a wild, wild movie. Um, Abe, have you seen yeah. this movie before this week? Great question. I have not seen this movie before this week this is probably a, a title that i've passed by in many a blockbuster or hollywood video uh both you can look up on wikipedia what those are um, <laughs> and uh it, it when i was watching this movie it was uh, certainly all the themes that, that mike is talking about I'm, I'm sure we'll dive into those as well those definitely came up but then as i was watching this i thought to myself oh there's actually still movies that sort of follow this kind of blueprint uh that i've seen in the recent you know decades uh, since the release of this movie. So it, it is really fun to to say like, oh, wow, you know what? This is very reminiscent of like something like Don't Breathe or reminiscent of something like um, uh, The Collector or something like that, you know, where it's a weird house. Uh, you don't know how large it is or how small it is, but there's some cool stuff going on. But in general, I, I found this movie really fun to watch. I mean, it, there are some jump scares here and there, but it's not a type of Wes Craven slasher movie. It's kind of a... Uh, like what Mike was saying, there's a lot of social commentary, but there's also, I would say, there's a protagonist that you can really get behind. Because, uh, as we mentioned, um, it stars uh, Brandon Quinton Adams, and he's a really fun guy. He's got a good head on his shoulders. He's not trying to do anything terrible. He's actually trying to do something for his family. And um, I'm, you find yourself rooting for him. And as the movie goes along, you find that there's other characters to root for as well. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, like... Everett McGill and, and Wendy Robbie, Roby, they're just very, wow, they're they're a strange bunch. And they I was not characters. expecting some of the things, yeah, <laughs> I was not expecting some of the things that I saw on the screen from, from especially like Everett McGill. I was like, whoa, what is going on here? <laughs> like, so very, very interesting, fun watch. And uh, strangely, this is a question I'd have for you guys later, but we can talk about uh, uh, later, I guess. But it's, it's like, is this one of those things where you could introduce this to like a 12 year old or something like that you know i'm not saying that like you force them to watch it but more of like we talk about the the movies that you could introduce horror movies that you can introduce to a to uh, a younger audience and we we kind of mentioned like you know monster house or um i don't know something else but this one i wonder if you could you know it's funny you asked that just because of the sensibilities of where we are now and how what kind of movies are shown versus then where there were a lot of reviews i was reading a few of them, both positive and negative ones, where there were there was concern for the content in this film, if it was, and if it was too harsh for audiences to handle, um, mm -hmm. which is always funny when it ties into movies that happen to involve black characters. But there you go. Um, yeah. the... I was like, you know, I don't know if people have seen Mommy Dearest, <laughs> <laughs> but there, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think you know nowadays, yes, I don't think it's. All of it's it's you know it's not a graphic movie. There's violence in this film, but it's certainly not one that's riding on the you know the gore train necessarily. And it has a lot of implied things and you know some icky stuff involving what's going on in this with these people in this house and the nature of the people under the stairs or what have you. <clears throat> Maybe that's offset by the value of seeing a film with a young black kid as a protagonist because that's that's still a bit rare. I yeah I think that's a big part of it. Uh, as far as my thoughts on the film, just to get to that real quick, I haven't seen this movie in a while. It's been a minute since I've seen the people in the stairs, so I was really happy to, you know, get back into it and watch it here. And we've talked about Wes Craven before. We have a whole episode about Wes Craven, which I'll put in the show notes for this episode, which we did a couple years back, as far as our um, 
horror specials. It was when Wes Craven passed away, so that was one of the director spotlights that we did. I have a weird relationship with Wes Craven as far as his films go, where I seem to not be as big of a fan as of his major entries compared to some of his uh, lesser thought of ones or whatever. Like, I'm a, I, I really like The Last House on the Left. I'm not a big fan of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I prefer Scream 2 easily to Scream 1. Uh, but this, like... Really? Scream 2? Yes. It's not It's not a hard choice for me. But, uh, <laughs> but that, like... Because I, I, I'm a big fan of The Serpent and the Rainbow. I haven't seen Shocker in a long time either, and I have that too, so I'm going to watch that soon. And I'm like, I have a feeling like... Another if great I, VHS cover. It is. And like, after watching this one, I was like, am I going to just like... Like just be a huge fan of this set of Wes Craven films, and I don't think it would be off. I, I really, I like this film a lot, and I like what it's seeing. Like the the variety of kinds of films that Wes Craven's put together, it is neat to see him doing something like this that's tackling some interesting issues while also being a horror film and also being like a weird comedy. Uh, it has a lot going on, and I can really admire like the swings that he's taking here, where it's given his looking at his filmography like leading up to this point it's not like out of the out of nowhere he's made a lot of interesting choices where he's certainly not just like just a slasher director or just a hoarder like he's has right a, a variety of kinds of films that are all you know mostly genre fair but certainly like they're all doing interesting things and this one like you've mentioned already mike like it, it's it, it's taking in this kind of fun story but also in, in embedding it with a number of different ideas involving uh, you know race and class or what have you and just thinking about movies that I've seen just recently, this and movies that are just coming out around that time as well. This there would be like a perfect like triple feature you could watch watching like this movie, Candyman, and Us or Get Out. I mean, they it, it would all fit together quite well for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a whole, yeah, I'm just I, I I really enjoyed watching this film again. I enjoyed the different characters we got to work with, uh, seeing. <laughs> seeing Brandon now seeing like you know a, a young black kid as like basically the lead of this film that is something unique that you just don't get very often so it's like that that, that set that already sets this film apart in its own way mm-hmm. and watching Abe as you mentioned watching it become this sort of play on a home invasion thing where the inhabitants of the home are the ones that are doing the bad like that's there's a lot of fun to be had there and it makes the movie kind of a fun house film in its own way given you know both the threat that's presented by the people that own the house as well as the people under the stairs mm-hmm. um so yeah there's a lot here uh yeah <laughs> yeah that, that last point about it the, the kind of fun house quality of it i mean the set design is really quite remarkable because mm-hmm. you know the, oh, house yeah. works, <clears throat> the house works as this sort of menacing fortress as much as it does as a fun house right and so there's this kind of interesting aspect to how a lot of the film's sensibilities have come into vogue rather recently, most notably in the form of like escape rooms and things like that. I don't think this film is necessarily to be credited for that, but the trendiness currently of mazes and escape rooms, I think certainly adds or it gives the film a kind of longevity in the culture. Yeah. And so that would be like a, maybe another dimension um, of the film that would appeal to younger audiences if, if this was sort of a, an introductory film for them. Yeah, and, and, you know, they have, like, really clever things about it. You know, the funhouse elements, you know, there's these stairs that can retract. And I was like, that's not what I was expecting at all. And and this is actually kind of a really fun, well-thought-out part of, like, the house, um, even though it's, like, the basement part. But still, I was like, this is pretty clever here. And the way that they do it and the way that you can see them do it multiple times and where the levers are, that that's actually adds to how uh, how clever it can get. 
I mean, yeah, it's it's of course completely incomprehensible what the actual spatial logic of the house is and where things are, which I suppose is the point. But I think this needs to be like a Halloween Horror Nights maze. You know, it's even got like great one for sure. Yeah, the creepy scare actors who like reach out at you through the walls to grab you, but they're not actually allowed to touch you. It has all the ingredients for it, and it's a Universal movie. It seems very easy to set up Universal (laughs) Horror Nights. Uh, but no doubt, yeah, there's there's a lot of fun to be had in just the construction of the house, which is not only, yes, does it not make sense as far as, you know, t- spatial geography. Spatially, whatnot, yeah, but exactly. Same, but it's also, it's just ridiculous to begin with that this this pairing, who we eventually learn our brother and sister, like, th- they've designed a house where the stairs turn into a slide. <laughs> like, to me, like, it's, yes. it, it, there's a number of, the, the, the amount of, weird logic going on here in this movie is staggering at times as far as right, like a, yeah, like the, a character that can hide in the walls and never be found uh oops, the, so yeah the dog the dog at one point is sent down a shoot mm-hmm. from right. some place in the walls that leads into and out the kitchen sink mm-hmm. right yes. so what, yeah what's also fun about this movie is it gets going right away there's no there's no real like heavy setup to it we learn who the characters are. We learn what's going on. We learn that they're, you know, they they, they want to get out of their trash apartment kind of thing. And they there's something going on with the mom. And then it just cuts to, like, Ving Rhames. Yeah, like, I was going to hey, say, like, the, in, in your the, house. In the same scene that you learn that the mom is in trouble, like, Brandon, at, like, uh, what's it, Fool, he backs up and Ving Rhames is just there. And it's like, he's okay, just there like, smoking. He's yeah. just already there. It's not like he has to go to like his house, like, what's going on? Oh, it's me, Leroy. I'm just, he's like, he's already just sitting there with him. <laughs> Explain to him, hey, man, I have a job for you to do. And then, you know, they, they cut to uh, meeting the next character, Spencer. And she's like, I don't know who this guy is. I guess he works with Ving Rhames. And here we are at this house. The, so um, can, I, can yeah. I ask a Wes Craven question? Yeah. yeah. Um, since you guys covered it in more, in more detail. Um, on a previous episode, I'm wondering, you know, sort of later Wes Craven starts to introduce a lot more, not just humor, but very self-referential humor Sure. in terms of New Nightmare. And then, of course, the Scream franchise, it's all very um, self-reflection, self-reflexive in, in interesting ways. And I'm wondering in the chronology of his work, whether or not this film might be kind of a turning point or it's starting to telegraph a direction that he begins to take throughout the 90s, which is a little bit more wink-wink. I think Shocker does it, too. Shocker has a lot of comedic yeah. elements into it as well. I I mean, I don't think you're wrong, because, I, I mean, Wes Craven... He's a very... He, he, was a, he's a very, he was a very learned filmmaker. Like, he's a guy that, under, you know, he'd, in addition to making these movies, he's a, he was a professor. Sure. He taught film. He, you know, he knows how the process works, and at this Wait, point... Mike, he's been, are you also making horror movies on the side? <laughs> My alias is uh, Rob Zombie. Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm very depraved. But like th- this is coming. He's what? Like he's 20 years into filmmaking at this point. So he, you know, he's done a lot of things. I presumably he's done a lot of the things that he's wanted to do. Um, whatever passion projects he wanted to put out there under certain films with messages or what have you. And you know, he's taken some natural next steps to. Well, what else can I do with this genre where I've already been pronounced as, you know, a, a major force behind it? Um, having you know created one of a you know a slasher series that already has a legacy from back in 1984, um, let alone other notable film like The Hills Have Eyes, like just doing all this stuff. At that point, it's like yeah, right. Like he, 
there he's always had a there's been like comedic edge in his films going like up back to Blast House on the Left, which has ridiculous bumbling cops in it that's very tonally jarring for that film. But he's never <laughs> been averse to kind of inserting humor into his films or having ways that even the the character the nature of Freddy Krueger. I mean, for all the menace has- that he stupid quips for all the menace that he provide and i mean regard regardless of like how the later sequels pan out before new nightmare mm-hmm. in addition to being the kind of menace there's certainly something about being a dream demon where he can have a you know a personality that's more than just silently stalking after somebody that i think in itself can be you know self-reflexive in its own way Remind me how how funny is Freddy in the first one? I feel like he gets goofier with the one liners. Oh, he oh for sure he gets goofier. He's still a threat for sure in that one. Right. But just Robert England's performance, you it, you know there's a there's a you know a dark charisma about him. It, it's why you'd want to see more of him specifically because of the performance he's putting on. It's not it's not you know it's not joke heavy in the same way that the, the, the later sequels more are. recent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but at the same time, there is something there where. It's not just that he's threatening, but that he has this kind of "quote unquote" killer attitude about him. Sounds like you're pretty positive on Wes Craven. <laughs> I'm not. It's not. I would you would you say you find yourself Craven, Wes Craven? Oh, you go home. <laughs> I think he has a very interesting filmography, and it's just like I don't necessarily like all of the films within it, but I do think because of how varied he was within the horror genre, there's a lot to explore, uh, and it's just a matter of the films that he's that get, that he gets the most credit for like nightmare on elm street i really find interesting i just don't yeah i'm not a huge fan of it uh it, it feels like fair there's a lot there's yeah. a lot of same con- i think he's a great concept guy there's a lot of great concepts in his film and they don't the films and they don't always deliver all the way and i like i don't dislike scream i think scream's great i just prefer scream too um i i feel like him as a director it just seems like he was shaking off some cobwebs making the first screen, but Scream 2 feels like he's firing on all cylinders. There's like weird fish islands and Scream. There's all kinds of weird... I don't want to talk it's about Scream 2. Really cool <laughs> stuff. The, the thing that I also want to add about uh, Wes Craven was after watching this movie, I, I checked out his MDV just to figure out where he was. Like, you guys just were talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, this is not what I was expecting, but also at the same time, like, it was it was a good thing, right? It, it's kind of like a... like a, uh, Not like a breath of fresh air, but it's... Um, you know, a happy. What what am I trying to describe here? Uh, it's better than I expected. I don't know. That's not the, the not really the right phrasing either. What are you trying but, to say? I'm trying, I'm trying to understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just that it's um. It's, Bob Ross would call it a happy accident, but that's not exactly what it means either. It, with all that being said, though, it's more just like, hey, in 1991, what what had West Craven already made? Um, and then I was kind of looking forward and like, what what he's gonna make next? And yeah, he makes like you know, a new nightmare in, in, a few years later, right? So, it is it is very fascinating um, just to see sort of the range stuff because you know a lot of people forget that he'd also made a movie that got Meryl Streep like a, an Academy Award nomination too, um, Music of the Heart, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not really there's, beyond there's one West time Craven. where he's like, I'm just gonna let me just do a straight drama, <laughs> just go for it. Didn't he do another one called One True Thing that was also? Isn't that Wes Craven? That's not Wes Craven. I don't know if that's Wes Craven. It's not Wes Craven. Look that okay. Up. Yeah. But, you know, just to just to be able to see this and say, oh, cool. You know, I totally get that Wes Craven tries things just like any other director might. You know, they have different different interests and they kind of just want to experiment on the screen. And to your point, Aaron, 
he'd been making movies for like 20 years already. So it's not as though he's like a, a young up and coming guy. And she's like, let me try this genre this time. That's and let me Carl really Franklin get that family movie, audience. One true thing to Carl Franklin. <laughs> yeah, I just looked it up too. So it is Meryl Streep. That's Meryl Streep. Yeah. I got it confused yeah. with the music of the heart. But Thank so you. real quick, a uh, three word question. Uh, vampire in Brooklyn, question mark. It's a like his interesting his, thoughts. His his <laughs> 90s run is pretty great, except for that. Like that's the that's like the weird <laughs> right, thing. It's like it's like Eddie Murphy and Wes Craven is like, you know, it'll be fun. And he's like, what Eddie? And he's like, oh, yeah, we we made a vampire movie. Like I don't know. <laughs> is that <laughs> your Eddie Murphy? <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. I can't right, wait for I, you to the, wear the, your uh, your leather all outfit. All these years I've been on the podcast. And you I know. How dare you hold the back from time. us? The thing I remember best about Vampire in Brooklyn, well, two things. One is the Caribbean accent that Eddie Murphy has as the <laughs> the main vampire that he plays. But that the trailer, the commercial, because it was in this that '90s zone where Eddie Murphy's playing like a bunch of different characters in movies. The the cast list that it would be it was it would be Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, Angela Bassett, and Eddie Murphy in Vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, oh, that 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 range from Eddie Murphy continues. Well into the 2000s, my friend. <laughs> I didn't say it stopped. I'm just saying it was during that time, like when he was like kept going. Point yeah. characters. Uh, Question for you guys: In terms of the actors that are here, aside from Brandon Adams, who we've uh, exposed a lot of uh, praise for, you know, when you talk about Everett McGill, Wendy Robbie, and and like AJ Langer, I mean, can you guys talked about their performances and and kind of just like how it feels like everybody was bringing it. Well, what, oh, they're, they're bringing it. Yeah, they are, they are bringing it. I like seeing Young Ving Rhames, by the way. Yes, uh, yeah, of course. It's neat to see how he's evolved, um, but he, you know, he's certainly Ving Rhames. Uh, but yeah, Ever McGill and Wendy Roby are like the MVPs of this movie. Like, there's they're so much like bonkers energy that they're bringing out here, which makes sense when you're like, yeah, we got two of two of David Lynch's guys, people from uh, Twin Peaks, to like be weird again. And Ever McGill was specifically, it's like not just is he going to be like unhinged he's gonna be wearing like this black rubber costume for a this, good like, chunk Jim of the movie Buffett. yeah <laughs> i know that's the part where i was like what is going on here yeah. right now oh, they they walk away with this film i mm-hmm. think i mean because of course the obvious link is twin peaks because they play a couple in that yeah. as uh, big ed and nadine <clears throat> the thing is nadine is already such a kooky character in the context of the twin peaks universe that this is maybe arguably less of a stretch for her but man like the big Ed character from Twin Peaks is such a gentle giant in that series. And then so to watch Everett McGill ham it up to like 11 yeah. and this is just so delightful and fun. And it, it, it makes really excellent use of his naturally really angular features. Right. He's got this sort of odd shaped head and those like bulging eyes. It's just like <clears throat> they, they credit to these actors for being so game. Right. Because the performances are so committed. Um, when he thinks he's stabbed fool through the 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 wall and yells "Gotcha," mm-hmm. it's it's the greatest line delivery in the whole film. It's the it is that energy that really brings it home for this movie in a lot of ways because the I think what again it's not necessarily it's not the direction that I think is like the highlight here because I I I think Wes Craven like he he has the idea he has the people he needs he has the concept he has everything here. But if this was like a Sam Raimi film where you could like really bring a you know level of like camera vis- velocity at you, like having like sure. really just running around the hallways, going through the walls or whatnot, 
this might be like one of the best movies ever made. Um, here you have a lot of like canted angles and whatnot, and there's some, there, there's a lot of creepiness. In it. And I'm not saying it's like poorly directed film, but there is like a level of energy that I think is achieved because of the cast, because because of what that what what that element brings to the movie. Yeah, the directing's rather workmanlike mm-hmm. when you think about it. Yeah. Um, it is it is the cast's uh, uh, show. If I had to point to a weakest link, I think it's it's ours, AJ Langer. Um, I find her, at least on this rewatch, I found her a bit dry, especially toward the end when she becomes maybe a bit too assertive and articulate in contrast to how meek she is in the in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder what you guys thought. What kept getting me was because these are supposed to be... We should talk more about like what the people under the stairs are, sure. what's going on yeah, in this yeah. house. But we'll, we'll get there and, soon. But essentially, everyone's supposed to be a child in this movie. And yeah. Brandon Adams looks like a child um I mean, AJ he Langer, is. <laughs> yeah because he is a child aj langer and like sean whalen they're not children but they're supposed uh-huh. to be playing like much younger than they look and it was hard to reconcile that watching this uh sean whalen i guess because he's just he has an odd look to begin with so i like yeah. i can understand what they're going for there but aj Langer, i agree with you there's kind of this it go it plays into the weirdness of the film, but at the same time, knowing that she's supposed to be much younger than she is, it's like, well, it's, it's like it's not the '40s where you can like have an actor dressed a certain way and be like, <laughs> oh yeah, they're you know they're 13, like whatever. It yeah. Makes how, sense. how old is she? Uh, I think she's like at the time of filming. I think she's like 17 or 18. She's supposed to be like 12. Oh, like, so uh, it's, like it's it's this weird I, like yeah. As far as Asia Linger goes, I definitely wanted to add that um, yeah, sure her her whole entire like developmental arc kind of goes pretty quickly but i like the physical acting that she's doing um you know there's a part where she's got to find a fork and she's super scared stiff and then there's another part where she is being forced to like take a hot ass bath and i was like this is this is where she's getting uh most of her work right now it's like it's not so much about the dry delivery but it's about all the physical abuse stuff Mm mm-hmm now let's get into the, some of the themes that we've talked about here. We've been talking kind of a, a lot about the movie and the director and some of the actors, but um, you guys touched upon a lot of these themes when we were sort of introing it. You know, the first one that comes to mind is is obviously you know uh, the class uh, and race uh, things here. I'm curious what you guys took away from it from 1981's perspective, and then Aaron, you talked about how it's still relevant today. Well, I mean, in '91, you can. You're, you're coming off the, or no one's the, the LA in. riots. Well, LA riots for one thing, but I mean, it's still, it's still Reagan era. No, it's Bush era at this it's point. Bush. Yeah. Sorry. But you can, you look at daddy and mommy, Ever McGill and Wendy Roby's character, who again, are brother and sister, uh, call themselves daddy and mommy. Um, that's very weird. Yep. Very weird. Uh, they're very much like the Reagans. Like that's the, I mean, I, I don't find that to be <laughs> like an odd, odd thing to say. Like they're, yeah, well, can to I, be like the Reagans, like right. Can I add that uh, Ronald Reagan? Do you know what he called Nancy Reagan? I assume mommy. He called her mommy. Mm-hmm. And I think I think Mike Pence, our current VP, calls his wife mother. <laughs> mother. Yes. It's all right there as far as what we're trying to. It's this kind of. It's not a yuppie thing, which I mean, we're out of the '80s at this point. It's the '90s, but like there's a there's a sense that you have these. <laughs> Characters align with super strict and conservative ways, and how they're how they have rules to try to set a certain kind of order or what have you, and disobeying them, you know, means banishment or what have you. In addition to that, they're also 
you know, wealthy white people that own homes and are doing all they can to keep the minorities and people of color and what have you out and demolish. And, uh, so, they, I mean, it gets into gentrification. Uh, like, sure. there, and so there's, there's a lot there that, I mean, we've talked about plenty last year, eh, with the various movies we were watching then, like, like Blind Spotting and Sorry to Bother You and what have you. Like, there's yeah. so much there uh, to look at and see. Wes Craven is clearly making more than just a fun house movie. He's making a movie about the time that he's seeing and what kinds of people are you know, uh, trying to exert a uh, number of uh, kind of a level of power without uh, having much in their mind, if not mm-hmm. even worse things that they have to, in order to kind of achieve said power. Yeah. Right. And, and don't forget they, uh, perhaps worst of all, they obviously believe in homeschooling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, I mean, the, the satire here, the commentary is so plainly directed toward this presentation of like this this nexus between whiteness, wealth, and religious conservatism mm-hmm. that is inescapable from a given the time period this is made. It, it's meant to represent the Reagan years that immediately preceded this film, and then of course the Bush administration, which would have been ongoing when this film was made. And so it, it's not just that it presents this material, but it rather pointedly suggests to us that underneath that veneer of conservatism and religious holier-than-thou-ness is, of course, deep sexual perversion, racism, and sadism, right? Oh, that's, yeah. that's the thesis of the film. Um, and, of course, there's a scene in which a fool is crawling around, and he comes across the TV that's playing footage from Operation Desert Storm. Yeah, it's the Gulf so, War. Yeah. That, that was like the most on-the-nose thing for me. I was yeah. like, wow, this is very, like, this is a message right here. It's it's clearly aimed at the the occupants of the, the, the White House at the wow. time. And then, Mike, you actually brought up something really, really fascinating about the, um, you know, up and down. You brought up, you know, the, the current movie Us uh, that was released this year and kind of just like the whole entire metaphor of up and down people living below. And so I kind of want to get into like the part about um, we're going to touch the themes again soon. I'm sure we have tons of those, but I kind of want to talk about the actual title of the movie, The People Under the Stairs, <laughs> like. What was it, Aaron? Like, what was mother and mommy and and what what daddy's like? What was their intention here? So, to to get straight into what's going on with them, you have you have daddy and mommy essentially kidnapping people, kids, um, attempting to raise them, and if they don't follow the rules, which is uh, what the uh, see no evil, hear see no, no evil, evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, speak no evil. If they disobey said rules, they get banished. Uh, they get sent into the base, their like crazy basement. Um, the character Sean Whalen, who plays Roach, he's he was banished, but he at the same time he was able to kind of avoid capture. Um, so he just kind of <laughs> hides in the walls with them, constantly trying to find him and get rid of him in some manner. That yeah. said, they did cut out his tongue, so he can't speak. He just kind of like makes childish noises as he <laughs> moves around the house. But yeah, you have this kind of a a, a, a large group of grown-up kids that have been living under the under the house under the stairs mm-hmm. for the longest time and they've de- they've kind of d- developed into cannibals at this point and they have very pale skin obviously because they see no sunlight uh right. long stringy hair there's they've gone uh, feral basically yeah, they've, yeah there you go yeah. they've gone feral they're not like monsters necessarily they're just been deprived of anything and they're now they're depraved like it's yeah it's very sad but they're not like a force of evil necessarily certainly not in the way that daddy and mommy are um, yeah it's not as though they've been like they're like they're not like demons from hell they are actual kids they're like a bunch of feral golems and taller 
Yeah. <laughs> the the thing that the details that I liked about this, you mentioned like the long hair is like, yeah, the tattered clothing. It's the same clothes that they've been wearing for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And their nails are all long, and yeah, like the hair is long because who's gonna give them haircuts, right? They're just down there in the basement eating whatever the mommy and daddy give to them and watching cable news. They're almost like box trolls, except they don't get to have any fun. <laughs> They don't get to create. They don't get to build anything. They're just and they're stuck in one place. They don't get to go under all the sewers and everything. Right. Box so trolls. my question is, how did Roach get out? Well, he never got like captured, right? Like, oh, he, he's just like escaped the clutches of Daddy after they cut out his tongue. Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Somehow. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. He's been he's been like running around the house ever since. I love that. There's just like they've been trying to chase him for like years now. His um, Sean Whalen doesn't resemble. Uh, 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 Bruce Campbell at all, but doesn't Roach, his costume design, appear a lot like Ash from Evil Dead? A little bit. Uh, I was wondering if that was an homage in any way. Especially with like, the board I, behind his back. I wouldn't know, put to... it past you because Sam Raimi and Wes Craven do have like a kind of... A, there's no rivalry, but it's more of like a... They have in-jokes with each other, where they're like... Mm-hmm. There's, there's like a Hills Have Eyes poster in Evil Dead at one point, and then there's an Evil Dead... I believe it's playing like in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street at one point. Like, they have a lot of references to each other as if, like, to give, like, a tap on the shoulder type of thing. And so, yeah. you know, yeah, if you dress, dressing up Sean Whale's character is somewhat similar to Ash, wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if that was, like, right. a, a deliberate thing. It's pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. The other part that I wanted to talk about was, going back to the themes, is, um, you know, it's almost like this weird concept of of uh, narrow-mindedness like the house is literally like you know just being shut off from the world right you know that everything's barred up everything's steel and so you you kind of like develop your own narratives in the house because you've been watching news or you kind of just like sl- like interact so so like on the slimmest of slimmest margins with the outside world so your views are always just the same and toward the end of the movie there's this sense of like hey you know what no we're a community you know we do have each other's backs here like you guys are the ones that shut yourselves out and we're all out here living and you guys are living in like this like weird dream world and you know you're not alone yet. I mean, it's it you guys are just like weirdos but to some degree it's almost like um it's like this really cool metaphor of just like the house being your closed off brain and you know when you do that you kind of miss out on a lot of things that's interesting i mean so where in that uh dynamic do you place the the character of fool right the sort of outsider who comes in to mm-hmm. sort of is it to liberate uh the people trapped inside because that would be interesting or is it to kind of uh what <clears throat> uh, yeah uh, i wouldn't necessarily say that it, maybe say the, say the last part like forge an alliance with the people who are uh, being wronged by this sort of hermetically sealed system um, yeah i, I would kind of just but more so like mommy and daddy in the in that whole entire closed off thing. I mean the the whole entire like kids under the stairs thing. That's I think that's kind of just more of a, you know that a a uh, which call it a an action a consequence of like those kids being kidnapped so to speak. But uh, at the same, I mean, if you're thinking specifically a fool, I mean he could he represents the new class, the, the, the what's coming in, right? I mean he's 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 a child uh, who sees what's going on, sees the wrong here, and wants to make it right. He, he's he, If you have mommy and daddy as the old stalwarts, per se, and you have this kind of weird set that's going on under, underneath them all, um, the the way to kind of 
evolve in a new direction is by bringing in new fresh blood, right? And that that that, that that's what be what fool would be in this scenario. Yeah, it's and it, not, it's, it's a... not it's not Leroy or Spencer. They would represent something else, right? They represent a different kind of class um, yep. that you know ultimately dies like it gets killed off in this they're not strong enough to fight what's going after here or whatever where you have fool whose you know optimism and determination ultimately makes him the most successful yeah and and i throw in alice there too just saying like hey alice you've kind of like been you've been growing up in this type of environment but no there's there's more to it you know she she definitely says things like i'm not, i don't know what outside is you know i'm not allowed to go outside and then when she gets to a window, she's just like, I can't leave. You know, this is kind of all I know. He's like, no, man, what are you talking about? It's like, um, I, I actually kind of uh, like what he says there. He's like, uh, I never thought I'd miss, like, the the smell of the ghetto or something like that. Or it's like, it's just very uh, funny on that part. But still, I, I think that it's it's really, like, this microcosm of society, sure. But at the same time, it's also just like, you know, if you uh, never explore the things, and you, if you're a little bit too timid to explore it, just give it a shot. Give it a shot, and you'll you'll be surprised at how much you can, how quickly you can learn and change anew. Yeah, that isn't that. That's all interesting. I mean, you're taking this kind of coming of age approach to Fool's journey, but <clears throat> I mean, it's inseparable from um, you know Aaron's take that he he represents sort of a new infusion of blood and perspective into this world and of course mommy and daddy are like old money right but <clears throat> almost literally too yeah yeah and so because they imply that like oh they've kind of slowly gone insane because they've been living in the house for generations and and passing on their wealth and and, and their inbreds you should keep that in mind as well right. <laughs> <laughs> um but also it's inseparable from the fact that fool is not just sort of a young uh spry protagonist but he is uh a black kid yeah, because that that becomes a really important sort of conduit into the story, because there's like that scene in the beginning with the tarot cards mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. kind of telegraph everything right from the start. Right. I can't quite remember the details, but it's about the fool who has to come out through the fire to become a new man or something like that. And so the film does something interesting, which is that his and, and Aaron, you you, uh, you left out something in the beginning in the opening when you talked about, yeah, they're trying to rob this house and they get trapped because this this like house of horrors. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, they're specifically trying to rob this house, not only because they think it'll really pay out. They think there's like buried treasure, but also as an act of revenge, because these are these slumlords who are yeah. disenfranchising yes. their community. And so there's this interesting thing going on in in which like this notion of ri rising up against against Whitey, basically, is presented as an important stage in the adolescence and maturation of this young black boy because he's constantly being told that he's oh you're too soft or you're too unprepared you're too chicken shit for this or that and so you know his ability so it's kind of a, an assertion of his manhood of his masculinity of his worth of his maturation that's entirely tied up in questions of race and kind of anti-establishment resistance mm -hmm. that gives this film a kind of a really interesting perspective on race and class disparity that is like way more interesting than anything in stupid joker if you ask me <laughs> <laughs> no but you don't get it you know bruce wayne's gonna or thomas wayne's gonna change the world is he though <laughs> not anymore um yeah. oh damn <laughs> oh yeah spoilers uh, batman's <laughs> dad dies yeah that's a big spoiler <laughs> Uh, question for you guys here: What happens to the kids at the end? They just like they just like run off yeah, like, in the different directions. Well, they get a second chance. 
but what, did, did they go find their families like Leonardo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can? Doesn't matter what they do. What they, what they're not doing is grabbing people on the street and eating them. They're getting that's a second true. chance. Yeah, that's like, true. They, they've 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 been liberated. They can go on. They can become the things that they want to be now, or whatever they can get up to. Well, yeah, one of them gives us like a really cheeky smile before he kind of disappears. <laughs> into the... mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, is he handsome? Maybe. <laughs> They're he reminded, all he reminded me of um, Luke Goss and Blade Two, one of the uh, the sure sure the, yeah. the vampires <laughs> with the mouths. Novak, yeah, yeah, Novak. There we go. <laughs> I've got a series of questions for you guys here. One of the first ones being, um, what were some of the scenes that were horrific for you guys in this movie? I think like the example that I have is like when mommy finally gets her comeuppance and she gets thrown down the stairs and you see that her her neck has been slashed and it's like oh wow like they really took it out on her. I'd say you already mentioned it, but I think the uh, the bathtub scene is genuinely upsetting. And maybe that's partly because it, it actually feels like what real child abuse would look like, as opposed to these sort of much more fantastic conceits of like cannibals in the walls, you know? Sure. Yeah. And, and that scene is actually built up extendedly because the reason why her dress is dirty is because mommy pushed her into the blood. Yeah, there's I mean, there's some like early on the implication of what daddy's going to do because of like Alice um, almost losing the fork. Like he gets his belt out and he's going to like beat her. It's like, there's stuff like that where it's like, well, he does beat her. Well, he does. I mean, but and she it, says like, stay away from her face. Yeah. It's, but it's like, it's the way it's show. It's yeah. It's the implication sure. more than actually showing you, showing, you know, him beating her where it's like, Ugh, this is an ugly situation already before anything like even like all that crazy has happened. Although we did see like a hand reach to the wall and be like, here's the fork. Like, okay. But, um, <laughs> Uh, there's some shots of Ving Rhames um, after he's been killed, essentially, that are oh, yeah. pretty, like, I was not gnarly. expecting that. Yeah. I feel like they could have gotten more meat off of him before they uh, dumped the body in the sewer. Yeah, I mean, there's... there's <laughs> just being practical. I know what you're saying. I, I know you're being somewhat, <laughs> you know, humorous, but, like, there is... I, I, wouldn't call, I wouldn't say the movie's necessarily tame, but there is a... It's not playing up the kind of R-ratedness that it could. Especially for a film that involves, you know, literal cam- cannibals that live under the stairs, uh, there's there's more playfulness here, which I think does sure. play into the. I mean, as Abe, you were mentioning already, the idea that you know a younger audience could, not you know, not a super young audience, and not like the first film that they ever watched as a horror movie, but there's certainly a a way to justify like, yes, I could put this on the docket as far as an early horror film that you can watch because of both, as you mentioned, Mike, the fact that yes, you do have a young black protagonist as the lead as opposed to teenagers or what have you and just the nature of how the movie plays out where there's like spooky stuff and there's some you know grisly things but it's not it's it's not running away with like look how much gore we can show you in this house it has it, it, right. it doesn't it doesn't take chances in that kind of direction and and what's fun about that maybe not fun is maybe fun is not the right word but what's interesting about that is that um, that's not the horrific parts of things, you know, Mike, you've definitely mentioned the, the child abuse part and that's, that's pretty terrible. Uh, and again, I felt for Alice during that scene too, cause you know, I, I just don't like when, when children are in peril kind of thing. Right. Um, but the other parts are like, you know, you think about this and you think about, um, something like the witch where it's like, Hey, your religion is really making you crazy right now in this particular, uh, setting. And, it's not so much the the horrific things that are happening around you. It's just that humans themselves are like the most horrific thing, um, and that's that's uh, what 
Uh, I actually like that turn of a, of characters because your introduction to Daddy is like, oh, he's like this stern, mean guy. He's the most dangerous. Like it's actually Mommy who's like really controlling everything, and she's she's the 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 worst one. I'm I'm still very interested in this question of. Uh, so let me run it by you guys. This question of um of fool mm-hmm. being our protagonist because so there's there's an age old racist myth. <clears throat> that black men are a particular threat to like virginal white women. Uh-huh. That that trope is exploited from the earliest phases of cinema, including like Birth of a Nation, and like Wendy Roby explicitly says, you know, oh, he's in here somewhere. He's with our little baby, and mm-hmm. you know, she's worried that her daughter is going to be sullied by this black kid who's invaded their house somehow, and that's like has undeniably racist connotations. Yeah, and For sure. so, so I'm really interested in this. Uh, rather unusual choice to have uh, a black protagonist who makes it all the way to the end of the film. Um, it's interesting that he in effect becomes the savior figure to this little white girl. Um, and there is a, a very narrow, but very real legacy of sort of black heroic leading men in the horror genre. And even if this film doesn't invoke that ex- explicitly, it still falls into a sort of cultural continuity with some thinking of like Dwayne Jones and night of the living dead that's another film that's rife with social commentary. Mm-hmm. And given how rare that film is, it, it strikes me that there, there are some really progressive and interesting things going on here that possibly accounts for where this film kind of holds up, even under current standards of like PC culture. Except like the one thing that maybe people would get tripped up on now is that <clears throat> this type of narrative would come with the expectation now that it probably should not be directed by a white man. Um, maybe that's something that, that would give people pause nowadays, but, but these things seem really radical and interesting and, and daring and bold. I me. think if the movie's good enough, it doesn't really make too much of a difference. Like, especially if you, add, if you're, if you're saying a move, I'm making a movie called people under the stairs and you're not, you know, directly saying it's about, you know, the gentrification of society and how, you know, old white money is taking over the land and what these black people are going to do about it. it if you're just saying like, I'm making a movie about like creepy cannibals that live under the ground and there's a weird couple or whatnot. And then like that stuff gets inserted uh, there's praise that can be you know you know well deserved for just like well if this movie you know has more layers than i was expecting uh, right versus making you know making something as overt uh as I, i'm not even sure i honestly it's uh, because, because there's even, even i mean i guess get out would be the best example because right. like even us is like it's not predicated on the idea that they need to be black characters in that film. It's just the family's black because they are. It plays into it for sure, but I mean, it's that, that plot does. What are you saying? Sorry. No, I, I can just picture some quarters of people saying, you know, well, this is about a black protagonist, and why does it have to be told by this white guy? Like, I can I can hear that in my head. Some chatter. those are those are the Twitter followers that have five people, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. got it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I can see that being a little blip in some quarters, but otherwise, like I don't think it takes anything away from the strengths of the film, and in particular, no, not at all. What it's doing, given when it's made, I think there's another really interesting thing because we talked about the people under the stairs. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note because there are these racial disparities that come up with regard to gentrification and um, sort of disenfranchisement and the unequal distribution of 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 uh, a quality of life. That's all being satirized in the film. But it's also important to note that like whiteness as a concept is not monolithic, right? Because that's where the people under the stairs come into it. Um, As far as I can tell, they're all white and they've all been sort of banished into the basement. But I think it's important to note that they're the victims of this unjust system as well. Um, I think 
if I recall, there's a scene in which Alice tells Fool that that mommy and daddy have been killing people who just approach the house, like post postmen and whoever. And so the house is essentially like eating members of the working class. And these institutions of justice represented by the police are there only to protect the establishment. And they're pretty useless in noticing even like the most obvious uh, uh, things wrong in front of them, let alone doing anything about it. So like, I think the film is maybe supposing that resistance against the quote unquote establishment, especially as it would have been perceived in that moment of American conservatism under Reagan Bush, is presented as an alliance between white and black working class. So the movie's like kind of Marxist in the way <laughs> in the way it conceives like how to overturn a supposed oppressor. And that that's like, I think, really, really interesting. And I don't think it's uh, too much of a stretch to, to think these elements are kind of weaved into the politics of the movie. I'm aware that Wes Craven, before he passed away, was developing a possible series for sci-fi. Um, and I'd be curious, especially given that that was, you know, more recently, that was, what, 2016, 17? Um, if you could, you know, at that point, you have, like, movies like The Purge coming out. Like, you, there's, there's certainly a chance for him to have, like, explored that territory in further depth by having a weekly series that goes into what's going on here, given that he already made a film back in 91 that, you know, had a number of issues and ideas that concern the politics and social awareness of the time what you could do you know in a more recent time and with you know an hour-long show every week or whatnot yeah and i think the more i think about his material you'll have to stop me if if it doesn't line up with everything but from uh last house on the left you mentioned the cops are really ineffective um uh, i think nancy's dad is is the sheriff or something in nightmare yeah, uh, Street, what, right? Ronnie, what was his name ronnie not ronnie cox is it ronnie cox hold up mm-hmm. Let me uh, make some noise while you look it up here. I'm just John thinking Saxon. about it. I mix there you go. They, they have but but so here. there's this distrust of these sort of established figures, right? Authority, but also the, the failure of the parents is a big uh, theme in mm-hmm. Nightmare. And so I'm wondering, like, this might be one of these sort of running streaks, right? That, that like youth and children, they're kind of on their own to, to face the horrors of the world um, on their own. And that's, that's the path. That's the... Uh, the, the gauntlet they have to go through to come out uh, stronger people. Now, maybe that's you know not unique to Wes Craven, but that seems to be something that maybe is a common thread throughout uh, otherwise very disparate works, as you mentioned. That's very interesting because you're right that, you know, as these children have to go through these things, they do become uh, something new. And what I like about it, too, is that it does touch upon like um, – what I really like about the theme of, you know, these these kids having to do what they have to do to to make it work is that I like this movie specifically that um, Fool is very young. He's like he's supposed to be 12 or he is 12. Yeah. But but what's fascinating is that he's not adept at like Mike, you were saying, like, you know, people don't really believe in him. And they're saying, like, you're not ready for the streets and or whatever the case is. So but things like he's very like um, he's true to his word, like from the mouth of babes kind of thing. And what I what I appreciate about that is, like, again, he's a character that you can totally trust. Right. Um, so his journey is one that you really come to appreciate. Um, and what I specifically like about it is. There's a part where he does escape, and he's like, "I'm gonna come back for you." And sure enough, he does, right? You know, it's it's not as though he was lying. And even in that interim time in which he's escaped, um, he does the right thing. He calls the cops. Um, and to your point about the cops part, that's another really interesting scene because they're not there just for like a blip, and they're there for an extended period of time. Not only are there like 
you know, uniform police officers is like a detective on the scene. And then there's also like, um, uh, what's the, the child endangerment thing? Um, Oh, the social, social services. services. Social, yeah, yeah, social services are also there in the, in the scene. And that takes not 40 seconds. That's that's like a minute and a half worth of movie right there. And it's really fascinating how long that they've stayed there. So to your point of like, you know, the police kind of gloss over some of these details if it's in white neighborhoods or versus black neighborhoods. It's like that. that's very I, I hadn't thought about that. Right. I mean, they arrive predisposed to believe the white family. Yeah. Right. They're yeah. just basically there to say, like, hey, we're really sorry to bother you. We're sorry to take up your time. Sure, I'll have a cookie. Right. And so, <clears throat> I mean, that's that's entirely kind of built upon a a distrust, not necessarily of institutions um, uh, in, in a <clears throat> general global way, but certainly uh, distrust of how institutions will apply their powers and apply their uh, uh, what discretion in unequal ways. Mm-hmm. And to that point, uh, I'd love to hear both your thoughts. Again, this is another example of horror movies doing more than just scaring you. They're actually bringing in a lot of like political themes, uh, dating back all the way to like you know early stuff like Night of the Living Dead and whatever else. I mean, can you guys talk about how people kind of think of horror as like one sided and how it's actually not? I mean, that just comes with genre cinema in general, sure. as far as. And not to say that's the only genre that does this, but yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know you know that. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's it, it's unfortunate to kind of pigeonhole a thing as a certain thing uh, when you get so much rich material out of said thing. Um, like you mentioned, Night of the Living Dead is an obvious example. Um, most of Romero's films are all varying examples of this kind of thing. But yeah, movies like this um, or Candyman that I mentioned, which is the same. When's Candyman? It's 92. It's a year later. But I mean, there are films that, like, Candyman is a slasher movie, but it also deals with the gentrification within uh, Chicago. Like, it, it's it's very specifically trying to tell a story um, about black culture and, like, what's going on. Um, and also directed by another white director, as well as, uh, <laughs> I think, a white, white protagonist as opposed to a black child here, Virginia Madsen, in that movie. But I mean, you can watch it either way and you can accept it for those things or you accept you can embrace both or you can, you know, choose to do what we're doing, which is explore the themes more heavily compared to the, you know, blood and gore aspect, because that's interesting. I mean, there's there's a lot there to dissect as mm-hmm. far as a general audience goes, even if they're not going in to be like, I hope I can watch this to get the social value out of it. Uh, there's still, you know, that segment that's going to be like, well, not only was I entertained on a visceral level, but there was something more going on there that I appreciated, whether it's seeing you know, a black, a young black protagonist, which I don't get to see very often or getting to see issues such as community and whatnot being like handled in a unique approach um, Mm -hmm. in the midst of a movie about, you know, cannibals coming out of the floors and going after crazy white people. Uh, There's (laughs) that, that's the, you know, ideally the takeaway is like, you know, not only did I get entertained by something, but there was, there is, there is something extra going on that I can appreciate as well. Yeah, I mean, some people call that sugarcoating the pill, right? You just sort of, you come to be entertained, and then you realize that you you got something a little more substantive out of it. And and I also want to add, I mean, this goes way back to like the early phases of of, of Hollywood filmmaking, when the horror genre was much less reputable, right? It was a strict B genre, 
Yeah, and by key, I don't, I don't just mean like as a sensibility, but it was sort of, it, it had a, a, a very low cap in terms of its budget allocation. These movies are like 60 minutes, 70 minutes long. Um, they're the, they're the undercard, right? To like the A feature, whatever the, the thing is with the big stars. And so, um, those, like I'm thinking of, let's say like Bride of Frankenstein <clears throat> or both Frankensteins, but, but mainly Bride has a lot of interesting, um, gender commentary, racial commentary. It's got it's scenes where Frankenstein's monster is being chased by uh, uh, sort of ignorant village folk with torches and, uh, and and pitchforks. And I mean, that imagery is very closely linked with basically lynch mobs, if you think of this in the context of when these films are being made. And so these are like uh, injections of subtle social commentary that are there to skirt the censors that would have been in effect at the time through the production code administration and whatnot. And so not only does the kind of disreputable B status of horror movies mean that there are fewer industry eyes looking over every little thing, so that gives you a little bit more freedom to like throw in a little bit of commentary here and there, but it also gives you a little bit of freedom to disavow that if anybody has a problem with it. So if someone were to look at your film and say, hey, we, we really think it's inappropriate for you to be criticizing religion in this way or criticizing police in this way, mm -hmm. um, some of the themes are just a little too out there. You can't do this. There are rules and there were rules about what kind of institutions you can be critical of. You can simply say, what are you talking about, man? It's a monster movie. Yeah, I mean, you have these filmmakers, I mean, especially at, in these early stages where it's like, it's not like they were born, grew up, and are like, when I, you know, when I get older, I'm going to be making monster movies. It's like, <laughs> I'll they, show they, you. They, they've had a certain line of thinking of what they want to do, what kind of stories they want to tell, and that's what filmmakers are. They're storytellers, yeah. and they see what's going on in society or whatever. It's like, I want to, you know, make a make a film that tackles the struggles of society at this time. And it's like, well, I'm not getting money for it this way, but I can see what's popular or what's getting funded. I can tell a story another way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that's only progressed further and further throughout the, you know, decades of film culture, like what kinds of stories we get to see, what kinds of films that people want to make and why they're doing that, regardless of what's, you know, coded around it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and in the particular case of the horror genre, it's this question of like, what is it that makes us anxious? Mm -hmm. What is it that scares us or what is it that kind of uh, makes us uneasy? And so none of what, these. Well, how does the fear of the other get handled in this particular way? Or like, what is the monster? Like, is it a literal, like giant fire breathing monster or, or is are it... we the monster? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, no, none of these filmmakers are working in a vacuum. Right. So they're all responding sure. to the dominant sort of uh, uh, cultural climates of their times. And, and that's what makes horror sort of uniquely enjoyable for its visceral components if if it's done well but also horror is uniquely legible as uh, as social texts which are which is always uh, makes for terrific analysis and conversation it's my favorite yeah. genre to like get into this sort of thing with and this is why you're uh, you've got these cool contests that we that we help you out with <laughs> yeah uh some of the things that i kind of want to round up my stuff with is like some of the fun stuff that i found this uh, found uh, about this movie in terms of like shots um, some of the shots I really liked of this movie were when, uh, which I call it, um, fool comes back upstairs and there's like the candle and the, uh, the doll that's waiting for him to kind of like to tell him like, Hey, come this way. Um, I, I definitely like that part. The other thing that I liked was, um, when Alice is hiding from mommy and daddy and they, they're like, she couldn't have gone out the, the door. She doesn't have a key and they're searching the, the kitchen. And I was like, I don't know where she is either. And She's in a really clever spot. There's actually like a really cool, like fun thing that happens with one of her shoes. Uh, and 
uh, you find out where she is. And I was like, oh, that that's that's <laughs> I would not have guessed that. And I'm not really sure how she did that, but I'm all for it. And um, the yeah, last yeah. thing is. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. The film really does. It's a big believer in like the resourcefulness of kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is this is back when we believed in kids. Um, so take that. The children were our future. Yeah, exactly. Hands around America. <laughs> but, uh, oh, no. no, arms around America. But the uh, the other thing is. Um, Get when, your scissors. Yeah. When Fool and Alice are um, doing a, a chimney scheme. And I was like, this is this is pretty fun. It's kind of clever, uh, especially with what happens um, after they drop something. Is this was this before or after Home Alone? Slightly. It would have been around the same time. I think Home Alone because, was released in 1991 as well. Because at one point, Fool straight up Home Alone's daddy with a brick to the face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Made me think of that. I think it's after Home Alone. Yeah. Um. Can, do you think... It's a year. It's one year exactly after Home after, Alone. Okay. <clears throat> Although, are the bricks to the face? Is that Home Alone 2? That, that, the paint cans are in paint part can. one and in part two, I think. It's paint, hey. paint cans in one and two. Bricks specifically are more in play okay. in, in, in two. Either way, a question for this you matters. guys. <laughs> question for you guys. I found, I found that the, the satire and social commentary is really layered and interesting and makes for great sort of analysis and, and competing interpretations. But some of the overt comedy felt a little tonally inconsistent and I, I don't think i think i think what's strongest about the film is when it's satirical and what definitely holds up is how unapologetically weird it is and that's what gives the film longevity as social commentary but also as as camp and and that that's what lends toward its kind of cult value um and that's what keeps it's going to keep audiences new audiences discovering the film over time where it doesn't succeed so much for me is where it veers too much into slapstick like when they ex- uh, electrocute the dog, for instance, it's like more goofy than clever. And this is what. Hey, felt- man, he paid attention in science class, though, Mike. I um, I the, will say I did like that. Accuracy, the scientific <laughs> accuracy of the film, I, I won't. I won't. Uh, sure, sure. I, 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 all, but I, I did like that dog that moment dog. just because I did like that moment just because I just couldn't. I didn't remember it. So I'm like, oh, that's funny. Like, I, I get what you're doing. Um, the There's thing you're describing like, quality to it that it feels really. Well, yeah, because like Ving Rhames like flies across the room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what you're I mean, what you're tackling is something that I just generally find problematic with Wes Craven is that his sense of humor, or at least how he employs deploys sense of humor in his films. It's not unlike Michael Bay where it's like, we're having comedy now we're doing comedy, comedy bits. And it always feels jarring. Like, as I mentioned last house on the left, a movie I really do like has ridiculous bumbling cops in the middle of a rape revenge story. It's nonsense. Doc, um, there, you can find other like weird examples and other his his uh, hills have eyes part two specifically. There's weird comedic bits in these things, and I get that he finds things funny, or he thinks that this is what the audiences want. Maybe it's a just an old fashioned thing where it's like the kids are going to love this part. I don't, I don't know, right. but I I think his he inserting comedy into his movies has always been kind of a double-edged thing where sometimes it really works and sometimes it really doesn't uh, sometimes he's really aiming to do it so it makes the most sense and yes the scream films come to mind to that degree especially the first two where three is almost an out and out comedy that happens to have some horror in it and four as i know is not good uh, compared to what abe thinks because he's wrong. how dare you um <laughs> uh, there's although credit to kevin williamson for the screams uh screenplays though right for two of them <laughs> Uh, well, the, the the two that you think are 
and arguably good, right? Well, he wrote those two. He, uh, Aaron Kruger wrote Scream 3, a big reason why Scream 3 is bad. And then uh, Kevin Williamson wrote 4, and then Kruger came in and did like a rewrite on it because Williamson couldn't like finish everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, but the, the two films he wrote, and he wrote Cursed also, which is terrible. But I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, it is like a mix, a match, a match of sensibilities there for sure. Like Kevin Williamson, um, I mean that in that '90s run that he had between those, and then he has Dawson's Creek, and then they're like, wait, let's polish off his. Uh, I know you did last summer screenplay. See what that you know, see how that works out as well. Like, <laughs> there's a sensibilities that that he and Craven seem to share as far as you know trying to tell a story and matching that with a you know a sense of humor, whether it's winking or refer- referential in some way or what have you. Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit clunky here. Like, there's that line when he manages to trick the dog by <laughs> insulting it. Um, what's the line? He says, like, hey, hey. You cat. You, you, your mother sleeps with cats or yeah, something like that. Or some, whatever the line is. I mean, it's it's clunky, I think. He's also no, got is, a great yeah. upper body strength. Yeah, no, I'm not like I'm not denying that it's it comes in in bad places here. It, yeah, I, what I'm, I'm saying, especially in a lot of these earlier films, like it's the balance is always off. It seems it seems like Freddy Krueger is like the one thing he got really right in that regard, as far as how to like really handle where the humor can play in a film that's designed to be you know fairly thrilling. Even then, that movie ends with like a bunch of kids getting into a car and it has Freddy's like coloring on top of the hood it's like oh he's not dead after all it's a weird movie <laughs> <laughs> then again i might have to rewatch uh music from the heart that's a horrific movie to watch it. Laugh it's the scariest movie that i've seen in my life just kidding what if we, what if we all watch music of the heart it's like this movie is probably the best movie we've ever seen it, it's, yeah yeah it's i was joking that it's scary it's it's it's, no, it's not scary but i like i know it's not like necessarily bet it's you know it's a drama like it, it's yeah. it's it's pretty straight it's a straightforward drama i suspect the only sort of remarkable thing about it is that it's directed by wes craven right yeah. that's the lingering question about it well, well yeah it's, because it's otherwise like, it's like a straightforward you know meryl streep delivering yet another fantastic performance blah 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 she's got a violin well it has that in sync song too i've actually never seen sync song yeah in sync and gloria estefan they had like a collab Oh, I'm sure that that got nominated for something or, or you know, it sounds like it, but it was certainly on, um, you know, TRL. That's for sure. <laughs> you own this soundtrack, don't you? It was put well, on. What? No, it was. It did get, no, it did get a. Uh, it sounds know, like yeah. it was nominated. Gloria it stuff get... on, you know, she does good work. It was. It did go up for a best original song Oscar. Boom. Um, any other thoughts on uh, people under the stairs? Have we not? Is there, is there anything we haven't talked about too much? We talked about the themes. We talked about like the horror and, and fun elements, and um, I don't know. I think we I think we covered a lot of it. I mean, it's, it felt brief, but we were talking for like over an hour now. No, I have nothing more to add. I think um, people should go see it. It's 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 a great conversation piece. I mean, it is. I do I do like that. Was like of the films he's done, like he gets to this point, he makes a film that, you know, tackles these ideas or whatnot. Like that, that I do find that really fascinating about Wes Craven, who like just a couple years ago made Serpent in the Rainbow, which is about, you know, voodoo culture and zombies. Like it's, it's like, it's as if he's like, well, I really, really want a different direction on this one. So let me make a movie that like celebrates the nature of black culture and society. <laughs> like what we can do. <laughs> and there's a little bit of crossover with the tarot cards, right? This sort of mysticism. Yes. Yeah. yeah yeah but it's not uh, there I mean, it comes down to like 
who's directing this movie and what kind of and like he's the writer on this film he's not adapting from anything or what have you he's just actually we didn't mention where the origins of this thing stemmed from um but the it, it conceptually he thought Wes Craven thought of this based on a, a story from the 70s where two bur- two burglars broke into a Los Angeles house which eventually led to police discovering that there were two children that had been locked away in, wow. in the home by their parents uh and that's the 70s. I mean, he was certainly influenced since then by just things going on in the world or whatnot to bring in other aspects to really round out the subtextual layers of what's going on in this movie. But yeah. it's all there. Yeah, I feel like if we were to re-envision this for like <clears throat> the current era, like questions of like the controversial stand your ground laws uh-huh. of, of people like going into a house and then getting killed and like all these interesting, which which very tragically and very often have these racial dimensions as well. I was wondering, like, this, I'm surprised no one has remade this. I'm not saying that's a good idea, right? A lot of remakes, especially in the horror genre, are utterly unnecessary. But right. uh, I'm surprised nobody has, um, well, I'm sure somebody's out there thinking about it. But uh, based on the chatter out there, I, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody optioning this or revisiting well, it. Like I mean, like I said, was he, he himself was actively developing a TV series for Sci-Fi Channel on this movie. So, I mean, the the uh, the, it, the concept exists as far as that goes, but it's just like the IP hey. is not, you know... It most... sounds like the kind of thing that might have gone into turnaround after his death. And I know like, Universal has a very lucrative relationship to Blumhouse. And so it seems like um, if they still own the rights to all this stuff, then someone maybe is, uh, maybe is developing it. I would, I would say it's probably just a matter of time at this point. At the same time, Wes Craven's a you know pretty notable figure in the horror world, and he has a lot of films, and there are other films that have a stronger IP value than people under the stairs, I'd imagine. I mean, they, they, they already remade Last House on the Left, Hills Have Eyes twice, Nightmare on Elm Street once so far. Um, the Scream series is still going, kind of. I mean, it's... Yeah, the TV show, right? <laughs> yeah, but that got because of the... Weinstein's produced it. They got into weird territory. Mm, got it. Um, so I mean, the why? Wow, what's going on with them? Uh, oh, nothing. Yeah. Nothing really. Nothing really. <laughs> yeah. I think you have to read about it yourself, though. Did one of them catch a cold or something? <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like I mean, like I said, it's. I think it's just a matter of time because I'm like I'm sure, you know, soon enough we'll we'll see another shocker, another serpent in the rainbow. It is strange, though, because when I think about this movie, if you're trying to, like, remake it for 2019 or 2020 or whatever the case is, um, I wonder if you kind of veer away from uh, it being this kind of, like, fun spook house movie into just straight, like, this kid is traumatized and there's all these, like, crazies and they just ramp up the craziness and more blood, more gore instead of just like, hey, there's, like, we've discussed here tonight – uh, I mean, there's a lot of layers of of commentary here. The content will be the content. I mean, as far it will it will apply to what works for 2019 versus 1991, as far as how violent it chooses it wants to get. But I mean, like Mike said, I mean, yeah, as a Universal film and with Blumhouse being their strongest horror arm, it makes pretty logical sense to be like, well, the, this is the studio that puts very you know the company that puts very little money into something uses generally one or two locations and makes it work. And so a movie mm-hmm. like people under the stairs, pretty easy, <laughs> pretty easy to set that up. You get a million dollars, you know. 90 million return. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, yeah. Blumhouse could do this for 10. 
Yeah, yeah. It, um, easily. You know, put easily. put Jordan Peele as the producer on it. Like done. Like it's not you know from the producer of Get Out, Jordan Peele. It's gonna make ten million in its opening weekend. Over ten million. Over ten million. Yeah. Right, so it begs the question: Who do you cast as mommy and daddy? It's a good question. Oh, what? Ooh, coming in hot. I can't even touch that one. I said Michael Shannon. Nice. Yeah. Can't do anything with that. That's a great pick. And uh, Tilda Swinton. <laughs> get this, oh, that feels a bit obvious. Do, I, yeah, do, do, yeah I, don't know, I don't know if the ages match up, but I'd kind of like to see Isabelle Huppert. Oh, like just straight that out of Greta? Be. Yeah. I mean, we've technically already seen that at this point. So it's like... <laughs> but, you know, more. I think... Uh, I mean, it's an interesting, there are interesting things you can do. And also horror lately has been very class conscious in, in weird ways. Because, for, so for instance, like someone mentioned uh, Don't Breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Follows was another major sort of horror title of that year. And they both take place in like dilapidated post-industrial Detroit. Yeah. If right. I recall. And so there's something about these, these, um, these cities or these suburbs that have been uh, fallen under hard times that make for great atmosphere because, you know, the, these kind of creaky, spooky houses that have been abandoned. Um, help is is not necessarily going to head right to you if you call 911. And so that makes for a great sort of horror context and great horror setup. But within that, you have these sort of class com- uh, commentaries about the people who've been left behind and, and um, uh, unequal access to the city's resources or producing certain kinds of um, horrific encounters between people. So that's all really ripe terrain um, that that filmmakers are, if not explicitly exploring, that's kind of making an appearance in a lot of the, the sort of grammar of the genre of late, I think. Um, and, and of course, the recent Joker does this uh, to like this maximal degree as well, even though I wouldn't necessarily call that a horror film. And so, like, I think horror is... Uh, kind of ready for this treatment right it's ready for a film like this uh once again even if uh even if it's not a straight remake yeah you're not wrong and i mean it's not like horror filmmakers don't you know have this among many other films that they admire and want to like pay tribute to or whatnot and i mean you can see a lot of references to this movie specifically in other horror movies that i've seen recently i can think of american horror story using a number of elements from people under the stairs in some of its seasons um but in terms of, yeah, like just straight up remaking this movie, it matter of time, as I said already, like it's just, it'll, it'll, it'll come when it comes. And I can only hope that, you know, there are smart filmmakers that do what works for updating this story to now keeping in mind the kind of things Wes Craven was going for at the time, as opposed to doing, you know, nothing of interest with the sure. yeah. story, which happens a lot with horror remakes. Well, let's definitely get our letters started for the uh, Halloween Horror Nights 2020. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Get that going. Um, all right. Well, I think we've talked pretty sufficiently about Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs, and I've been happy to do so because, yeah, this movie was a lot of fun to revisit for sure, and I'm happy that you, Abe, were, uh, were a big fan of it as well because, yeah, yeah, it's a fun one. Definitely. And thank, thank you both for uh, helping out with our little online contest for our for our students and, uh, and uh, yeah, always being willing to talk shop. Yeah, totally. And you can uh, you can send us our, our cash uh, to uh, Aaron's address, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I've already done that. Oh, Aaron, you're you're embezzling from me. You're you're. I better go into that house yeah, that you live yeah, in. I oughta. <laughs> yeah, get that money back. I, I sent him a, a bullion of gold coins, <laughs> and I stuck them in candles. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty clever for a twelve year old. Well. 
in wrapping up, we generally ask where people can find more of your work, but Mike, I don't think you have anything to plug, right? I have nothing to plug, but okay. uh, go see Parasite. Yeah. There you go. I'll, I'll yeah. plug uh, this other movie, this obscure little movie that uh, won the Palm d'Or. Go see it, because I approve. <laughs> that has some things in common with this movie. <laughs> yeah, I referenced it. Um, Stairs. But yeah, uh, you can find you know everything I do over at thecodezeek.com, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Abe? You know, Instagram, Abe.Moo, and Twitter.com slash Wallowitch Moose. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know you can find our podcast. We have We're our online. Facebook page, our Instagram page, and our Twitter page, and everything. We'll be back next week with another horror special. That should be a lot of fun. Uh, but once again, thank you, Mike Dillon, for joining us this evening. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. And that's going to do it. So until next time, so long. And goodbye. Talking about a black or white thing, cause that will cause conflict and make this illegit. But your definition of legit and illegitimate is confusing. Now the redhead wanna say to make things clearer. Cause in about a year or two, what you do is take a look up in the mirror. And what you see is the image of hate that you shed upon the others, the sisters, and your brothers. Now, in my opinion, you need someone to teach. The whole world is acting like a giant Howard Beach. I asked my man Victor what he used to do for fun. He said he learned to shoot a double for the age of 21. Crime and abortion, no kinds of my distortion. This is very important, but just a little caution. You know what you can do, that's a clue, and it's true Yo, don't want a brand new sweater and make your life better And do the right thing You got to do the right thing Do the right thing You got to do the right thing